The last time I was in Mississippi, it was just before the shutdown. It was February of 2020. I've just pulled into a driveway of a home in a small town called Forest, Mississippi. It's a town of around 5,500 people. It's about an hour east of Jackson, which is the capital of Mississippi. On this Saturday afternoon in early August of 2021, I'm going to meet up with Elena, who I haven't seen since I was last here. Okay, let's go see. Let's go. (laughs) When I first met Elena, it had been six months since more than 600 ICE officers had raided seven chicken plants across the state of Mississippi. Close to 700 workers were taken by ICE that day in August of 2019, and among them was Elena. The agents would surround the perimeter of the plant, then move in. They would check for proof of residency from the workers. Those without it were lined up by bus to an airport hangar for processing. Some will be arrested for crimes. Some will be deported immediately. I want people to know that if they come into the United States illegally, they're getting out. They're going to be brought out. And this serves as a very good deterrent. The last time I saw Elena, she was living yards away from a factory that used to make food for some of the chickens that would end up in the processing plants. During the pandemic, she was displaced from there and had to move several times. But now she's living in a home that's overlooking this beautiful, expansive, lush green lawn. Hola. She tells me she recently contracted COVID. Right now she says she's no longer positive for the virus, but her nine-year-old son has also tested positive, and now her two teenage daughters are currently sick with COVID. She says they're inside the house, just resting. Elena says the virus is already here and everywhere, no matter how much you try to protect yourself from it. Then she points across her big yard to her neighbor's house. Her neighbor's daughter is intubated in the hospital with COVID. She's 15 years old, and she's been in bed for about a week now. This week also marks the two-year anniversary of the ICE raids. So... All of these images and videos of that tragic day are being broadcast across the news here locally. It's really painful for Elena to have to relive that. Do you remember when I saw you last? And you said, I'm going to figure out a way to to survive. So, ¿qué hiciste? Cuando yo trabajaba para la pollera, yo le conté a usted que yo ganaba tan poquito que a veces no me alcanzaba hasta para comprar la comida de los niños. Yo por el momento ahora yo no pienso rezar la pollera. Te exigen tanto que tienes que correr tanto el pollo así que tienes que cortar así así y lo poquito que te están pagando. When Elena worked at the chicken plant, she says she sometimes didn't have enough money to even buy food for her own kids. 
but Elena doesn't plan on going back to the chicken plant for a lot of reasons. One of them is because she still doesn't have the right papers. And on top of that, she's also really worried there could be another ICE raid. She says basically her future is in the hands of immigration agents. After the raids at the plant, she was taken and held for a day, so now she has an ongoing immigration case. And Elena isn't alone. A lot of people who were picked up during those raids are in very similar situations. Watching Elena talk about that day, it's as if the raids were like an earthquake that never stopped. Because right now she's thinking back to the day of the raids and she's asking herself, what would have happened to her children if she had been deported? And then she's like, I would have been forced to go back to Guatemala and take my teenagers to a country that... I haven't been to in 15 years and that they don't know. En cambio aquí pues tienen una vida y yo puedo buscar la manera como mantenerlos. But here in Mississippi, she's like, I'll be able to find a way out. I mean, I'll lose everything maybe, but I'm going to find a way out. And despite all the risks that are involved in staying right here in Mississippi, Elena and her family say that they're going to persist because Mississippi is their home. From Futuro Media and PRX, it's Latino USA. I'm Maria Hinojosa. This week, two years after the massive ice raids at chicken processing plants across the state, we return again to Mississippi in our continuing reporting on the state. We're going to catch up with people we met in last year's episode. And this episode, we're going to look at the history of the poultry industry in the South and how it stems back decades and continues to systematically oppress the most vulnerable. In August of 2020, Latino USA aired after the Mississippi raids. I had traveled to Mississippi in February of 2020 to see how communities were coping several months after the ice raids, when most major news outlets had already moved on from the story. And now I'm back in Mississippi, where poultry is big business. And we're following up with some of the people that I met last year to see what's changed here and what hasn't. It's another boiling hot, humid day in central Mississippi, And I'm back standing in front of that large chicken processing plant that I first visited in 2020. This is one of the total of 50 processing plants that are scattered across the state. The poultry industry is actually the largest income-producing agricultural commodity in the state of Mississippi. And it's been that way for the past 21 years. This one is one of the ones that was raided by ice. A massive truck just pulled up that is probably going to get loaded with chickens. Right. You might remember Lorena Quiroz. I met her when I arrived here last year in 2020. She's a community organizer. The raids motivated her to basically create a nonprofit, 
the Immigrant Alliance for Justice and Equity in response to what happened. This plant, did it ever close down? Never. As a matter of fact, some of the people that were caught at at the race, they're back in there. And she says she's heard about this from a lot of people in the area. Okay, I need to know how that happens. They would just pretty much pretend that they didn't know that they were part of the race. They were invited to come reapply. They actually went out and recruited, and they would talk to people. Hey, si conoce a gente que quiere trabajar, estamos trabajando, estamos pagando. People would show up. They would know who it was. But if you gave them a different ID, you would get hired. Okay, wait, 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 wait. When did that happen? When, it when, as COVID started to hit, because people were right getting after, sick. right after we left. Right after you left. So you're saying that right after we left, February of 2020, it was six months after the raid, and it was kind of like, no, things are not moving, they're asking for papers, and you're saying that right then and then, they started saying to people, recruiting actively in the community? That's right, that's right. Now we were essential workers. Now we were needed. Now when people, you know, were going home and were getting sick, or didn't even want to come and get exposed, we were asked to come in and take these jobs. Lorena puts it this way, succinctly. The workers went from being undocumented to then being essential, overnight. How do you feel about that? I mean, you know, that's bullshit, right? I mean, we've always been essential. It's traumatic, it's deceitful, it's painful, especially with the hateful words coming out of the last president, right? of all these horrible things of what we are, and then COVID hits and we become essential. Yes, Lorena is deeply upset about all of this. But she's decided to use her anger instead to organize because she worries that things could get bad once again at these processing plants. They're not going to have enough people working. Then they're going to come back and get us. Oh, we need you. We want you. Come back. We're going to pay you a quarter more. Come on back. And it's a vicious cycle. Lorena points out this vicious cycle that became clear during the pandemic. First, there was a necessity to feed the country. Then the workers who were doing this got sick and they had to leave the plants. So the companies began recruiting undocumented workers, doing that even after the raids had taken place. What does the recruiting look like now after the raid? So they have contractors. They're really slick. The actual management, contracts, whatever company it is, and it changes every three to six months. These contractors are sometimes community people, and they recruit the people from the community. Lorena says she doesn't remember this happening back in February of 2020, after the raids had taken place. So as a matter of fact, one of our organizers, she went and she asked for her job back, said, hey, you know, my husband was deported. And they were like, you're not welcome here. She cried. She was humiliated. Several of our people did that. And they were going to these places and begging for work. And they were like, no, get the hell out of here. COVID hits. And I mean, it was just a 180. We spoke to several people in central Mississippi, and they told us similar stories about poultry factories initially being reluctant to hire undocumented workers because of the raids. But when the pandemic hit, as Lorena tells us, there was a labor shortage. And then, she says, these factories resorted to third-party labor contracting companies. It's a very common labor practice to try to outsource the accountability of the hiring of undocumented people and to be able to pay them less than they're paying 
direct hire workers. This is Angela Stisi. She's the author of Scratching Out a Living, Latinos, Race, and Work in the Deep South. Angela researched poultry factories in Mississippi, and she says the chicken plants have been turning to contracting companies for decades. Oftentimes, the owners of these third-party labor contractors are immigrants themselves, typically have papers, can speak English, right, and have the cultural and economic capital to set up these companies. When she was living in Mississippi, she saw firsthand how this worked. It seems very rare that corporations are ever actually held accountable for hiring undocumented people. And when they are, you know, the punishments are really pretty minor financial, you know, fines that that don't really impact the company. It was clear that since I last left Mississippi, these companies still needed and were depending on undocumented workers to staff their plants. We reached out to several chicken processing plants in the area, but we only heard back from one, Pico Foods. Pico Foods said in a statement that since 2008, they use the E-Verify program to screen new hires. They also said that they routinely audit internal hiring practices and mandate that third-party contractors comply with all local, state, and federal immigration and employment laws. When we come back, we're going to dive into the racial history of the poultry industry in the South and how these companies are looking for the most exploitable workforce in order to earn the greatest profit. And then we hear about an ugly turn of events, a new fear that's rising among those in the Latino and Latina community here. Stay with us, no te vayas. We're back. Before the break, we heard about contracting companies that were working on behalf of the poultry plants and hiring undocumented workers. Some of the plants are even hiring the same workers who had been taken away by ICE during the raids in 2019. To really understand how a once-fledgling poultry industry became a nearly $50 billion powerhouse that it is today... We need to look back at the racial history of chicken processing plants in the South. All right, we're going to go back to the story now. Three months after the ICE raids, a hearing was held by the House Subcommittee on Homeland Security at Tugaloo College in Jackson, Mississippi. Tugaloo was at the center of the civil rights movement in Mississippi and helped set the stage for activism that changed the direction of our country. That's Benny Thompson. He's the chairman of the committee, and he represents Mississippi's 2nd Congressional District. The college is a fitting venue for the Committee on Homeland Security to meet today to examine the recent immigration raids and their effect on Mississippi families, children, and communities. One of the people at the hearing was Jerry Miles. He was the special agent in charge of the New Orleans Field Office for ICE, a congressman from Texas 
questioned Miles at the hearing. You indicated that you wanted to take away the economic incentives. And you do that by coming in and taking the undocumented persons, have them do a perp walk, show some of that on television, and then you can somehow deter persons. But you don't have a perp walk for the employers. They don't get arrested. You're still investigating them. Is it true that there are no employers incarcerated? It is true. There are no employers incarcerated. And this happened months ago. That is true. As of today, at least four low-level managers at two chicken processing plants have been indicted for allegedly hiring undocumented workers. No top executives have been indicted. We reached out to ICE and to the Department of Justice to follow up on any updates, but we didn't hear back. Constance Slaughter Harvey is a respected civil rights leader in the community here in Mississippi. She was also at the Homeland Security hearing. She was asked a question by Congressman Steve Cohen of Tennessee that referenced a song named Mississippi Goddamn. You don't have to live next to me. Just give me my equality. Everybody knows about Alabama. Everybody knows about Mississippi. Everybody knows about Mississippi. Goddamn. That's it. The song is by Nina Simone. It was written during the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Here's Congressman Cohen with his question. Judge Slaughter Harvey, is that connection with the old Mississippi that Nina Simone sang of similar to what we have with immigrants, that there are efforts by in this state that are antagonistic toward people of color? I would say that, if not the same, maybe a little worse, I can identify with the disrespect and the inhumanity because I was treated in a similar way, but not nearly as bad. I knew my rights as an American citizen. These individuals don't know their rights. I could fight. They can't. She told Latino USA that the images she saw on the day of the raids brought back memories from decades ago. To know that a law enforcement officer would throw a woman down or a man or a child down, handcuff them and put a gun to their head, that's reminiscent of what happened to Black people during the movement. To see Hispanics just rounded up like animals and put on a a bus, I had a flashback. And I became very angry. We have not made that much change in official racism, not just in Mississippi, but in this country. And advocates say there hasn't been much change in the way that the poultry industry across the South exploits and relies on the most vulnerable workforce. The poultry industry really first began gelling as an industry into something of a factory setting around World War II. That's Angela Stesi again. She's the author of Scratching Out a Living. And at that time, many men were involved in the war effort, and it was largely women and white women who were recruited to work in those plants. In Mississippi, these plants were staffed for decades by white working class women. 
up until the civil rights movement. Once Black folks in Mississippi had gained voting rights and civil rights, their attention turned to economic justice, right? And they were also tired of working in the fields and in domestic work and saw work in chicken plants and other factory settings as really a step up. In the 1960s, Black workers began organizing for access to these jobs. It wasn't until the late 60s or even early 70s that the Black workers gained entrance into the chicken plants. Angela says it was a matter of weeks before the plants went from being mostly manned by white women to becoming an exclusively Black workforce. What they thought was going to be a racial integration of the plants really became a racial or ethnic succession in the chicken plants, and the plants turned almost exclusively to Black men and women. After working in the plants and seeing the grueling environment they faced, Black workers began organizing for better wages and working conditions during the 1970s. But Angela says it took some time until they would see any actual gains. And it was in the mid-90s when the chicken plants were facing the reality that they were going to have to negotiate with unions and with their workers that they had the idea to turn to immigrant labor. So companies started heavily recruiting immigrant Latino and Latina workers from Florida and Texas. The story is not complete unless we also think about the ways in which bringing in this workforce was an effort to keep Black workers in their places in the chicken plants. Angela goes on to say that these industries strategically located themselves in the South because... Wages were low and land was cheap and they could get people to grow chickens and to slaughter chickens at low cost. The South also has pretty poor legislation when it comes to protecting workers' rights. Many of the states in the South are right-to-work states, so it makes unionizing more difficult. So these are all incentives for the industry to locate in Mississippi. According to the Economic Policy Institute, it's estimated that there are almost 500,000 workers in the animal slaughtering and processing industry. Of those workers, nearly 35% are Latino, with 70% of those being non-citizens. That amounts to nearly a quarter of this industry being staffed by immigrants. Yesenia is one of those workers in this category. She's also undocumented and from Mexico. And we met her on my first trip here to Mississippi. She and her partner had been picked up by ICE during the raids. Back then, Yesenia was six months pregnant. And so she was eventually released. But her partner was detained for almost nine months. With his absence, Yesenia had to figure out how to provide for her family. And so she returned to the chicken processing plant for work. Hola, ¿qué tal? With a big smile, Yesenia opens the door and leads me into her home. This is a different place from the last time. It's a lot bigger. Her eight-year-old daughter sits on a stool in the kitchen eating dinner. What are you eating? What's for dinner? Spaghetti. Spaghetti and what? And chicken. Today was the little girl's first day of school. Then Yesenia's husband appears and says that he's on his way to work with some local folks. Hola. ¿Cómo le va? Bien, bien. 
when I last saw him, he had literally just been released from an ICE detention center. And, well, he looked pretty traumatized. Now he tells me that he wants to go back to work at the chicken processing plants. Why are you going to go back to work at a place where there was a raid? He has work authorization now, so he says he'd feel more at ease working at the plants. How did you get that? He has an attorney who's working with him, and he was able to get work authorization while his immigration case is unfolding. Wow. Well, I don't know when was the last time I saw one of these. It's like an ID card, an official ID card, you know, with a USA emblazoned seal, and it says United States of America Employment Authorization, and it has his name, and it's valid for one year. So then what? Then you have to go back and apply? He has to renew this work permit every year. Yesenia also has a kind of work authorization while her immigration case is pending as well. It's only temporary, so she still worries about her future. For now, she has to find a way to feed her family during the pandemic. Pues al principio todo era normal, pero ya conforme fue este avanzando la pandemia, ahora después todos los americanos salieron del trabajo y solo quedamos los hispanos. Yesenia says at the beginning of the pandemic, the working conditions at the plant were okay. But then people started to not show up to work. When you say that the only people who ended up working during the pandemic were Latino people, what exactly do you mean? Que a pesar de que, de, de, de que dicen los americanos que nosotros les quitamos su trabajo a ellos, ahora en la pandemia se, dio, se dieron cuenta que no es verdad. Porque todos salieron... Y decían ellos en arredadas, no, pues qué bueno que se fueron porque no, ellos nos quitan el trabajo. Yesenia says a lot of people say that Latinos and immigrants are taking jobs away from workers. But during the pandemic, they were at the forefront doing the kind of essential work that others wouldn't do. Do you feel like your work is being appreciated at that level? Like an essential worker who helped keep us all fed during the pandemic? No hay reconocimiento, sino reconocimiento uno mismo. These mixed signals to workers have long been at the root of American agriculture and its labor policy. And Yesenia is now dealing with that. Yesenia understands that she can still be deported at any moment. Even so, this is not Yesenia's biggest concern right now. I was surprised by this. Because, in fact, she's worried about something that's currently happening in her community, there have been a series of crimes against Latinos and Latinas, and they remain unsolved. Por ejemplo, apenas que hubo un caso de que mataron a una una mujer hispana embarazada, imagínate. En ese entonces se vivió así el temor entre los hispanos de que, pues, el día de mañana puede ser uno. A 19-year-old pregnant Guatemalan young woman named Maudilia Martina Ramirez Garcia and her brother. Faustino Ramirez Garcia were killed last December. 
Today marks one month since the tragic murder of a Guatemalan pregnant woman and her brother in Canton. The case is still open, and those in the Hispanic community are frustrated. Maudilia's unborn child was also killed. It was labeled a triple homicide. The Canton Police Department says this year there have been five murders, one Latino and four Black people. Canton is a small town of about 12,000, with the majority of the population being Black. Latinos and Latinas constitute about 8% of the racial makeup, but they account for 20% of the murders this year. On top of that, local news outlets say that for more than a decade, the Latino community has been subjected to violence and robberies. Many people we spoke with said that they really worry that they could be next. So what did the police say? No, no sé, no, o sea, es algo traumatizante. Ya uno duerme con el temor de que y si nos roban y esto no se va a hacer justicia porque somos hispanos. This particular murder has really hit close to home for Yesenia because she's four months pregnant. She says she sleeps now with the fear that something could happen to her and her family and that if something did, she worries that there would be no justice because they are Latinos and they're undocumented. The more I spent time in this community and spoke to people, the more I was able to see that fear was taking over their lives. And it was really hard for me to believe that these crimes remained unsolved. So I went to the Canton Police Department looking for answers. When I step inside the small lobby of the squat building, I don't see a single soul. There are only glass mirrors everywhere. So all you can see is your reflection. I walk over to an intercom and click a button and try to speak with someone. Yes, how can I help you? Hello, yes, Officer Jackson told us to come back to speak with the chief. Hi. Okay, I guess, I guess he probably would, whatever he's done one so. This is me. Okay. Thank you so much. That's Officer Tanya Jackson. She's a records officer. She takes me past the glass walls into a narrow hallway. And I ask her, what is the general feeling about the community two years since the poultry plant raids? Yeah, it's pretty much the same. It hasn't really, really changed. They still have their concerns. What are those concerns as far as you know? Uh, just uh, for us, uh, police safety, uh, answering their calls, showing them that we are concerned about their uh, well-being and their welfare. So is there anything else that kind of has stood out in terms of rising crime against these communities that over the past two years since the raid? Not really. It's been pretty much the same. While Officer Jackson and I speak, Stephen Johnson, the interim assistant chief, stands in the background. So I ask him about the crimes that have taken place in the community. We have leads, but the problem is, is getting, I guess, the community to come forward and contribute the information that they have. No law enforcement agency is going to be successful without the community. How many of your officers uh, speak Spanish? Uh, none at the moment, ma'am. Not we have any. You're saying that in the entire Canton Police Department, you have not one officer who speaks Spanish? No, ma'am. No one that's bilingual. No. Okay, so forgive me, but 
I, I have to, I'm sorry, but it's like you're saying we're waiting on the community to come to speak with us. Yeah. And I'm saying, how do you want them to speak to you if you don't have the language to speak to them in? Uh, it's always a trust issue with any. But I'm not talking yeah. about trust. Yeah. I'm talking about language. The officers say they don't have anyone on site that is an interpreter, and that if they need someone to interpret, they have to call an outside resource. Do you have people who speak mom? Mom? I'm sorry? Say again. I'm sorry. Do you have anyone who speaks the language of mom? You didn't, did you know that that was a language that is? Um, I wasn't tracking that. I was not. So, but you do know that there are multiple indigenous languages that are spoken in this community. I mean, okay, I'm going to just go there. Please forgive me. So we were in Mississippi, the history in terms of police, community relations. And I need to understand how, how I'm supposed to place this. This is a community that has been here, clearly not going anywhere. Yes. Like for years. Yes, so you have to understand that. I come in and I'm like, I don't understand. Like, who's advocating for them in this police department? Uh, like I said, we don't have any Spanish speaking in the uh, officers. Uh, we're, we have advertised, we have asked, hey, come forward, you know, put the application in. Yes. Put in applications, yeah. you know, to come and work here as, as uh, dispatchers and as uh, officers. So I share this story with these police officers that while I've been reporting here, I met a little boy who told me that at one point he really wanted to be a police officer. But then he told me the raids happened and that ICE agents took his father away and that since then, the little boy despises law enforcement and would never want to become a cop. Officer Jackson has a visceral reaction so you're getting emotional yes. about what happened two years ago because... Yes. It's sad. They're just trying to work and try to provide. And they, it shouldn't have been done in that manner. The blowback affects you. It affects us. Just, That's exactly the problem we have right now, the trust issue. They think all officers, all law enforcement are bad, and we're not. We would love to help them. We just can't get them to open up. But it's kind of like in the history of black-white relations in this, in this state. It almost feels like you're saying, well, they got to do the work. They have to talk to us. They have to trust us. And it's like, but you're telling the victims. And how many times in the history of Mississippi were black people told in this state, well, you just need to trust us. Well, you just need to come forward. I get it. I, I guess they see us as, hey, maybe. I don't know if they want to help, you know, but we're always here to help. Everything that occurred that day was political. And what was the political message you think they were trying to send on that day of the raid? You don't want me to tell it. You don't want me to say it. You don't want me to say it. Leaving the police department, I felt really frustrated. I hopped into the car to meet back up with Lorena, the activist. We were going to go to an area where several of the poultry plant workers live, and it's the area where some of the most recent crimes targeting Latinos and Latinas have taken place. So where are we? 
Sí, este es un, un trailer park, es the, the famous Canton trailer park. Why is it famous? Because if you look at the trailer park of the homes, they look like they're falling apart. There's holes on the floors, the doors don't lock, the windows don't close. This is the trailer park where a 41-year-old man named Amelio Garcia Perez was killed this past May. It's also close to the house where Maudilia and Faustino were killed, the brother and sister. It's also walking distance to the pollera, the chicken plant. And so this is where uh, Black people lived for decades. And then when we started coming in in the last couple of, I would say about 10, 20 years, we've been here, the immigrant community, I would say about 99% of the trailers um, should not be housing families or children. I'm taking stock as I'm walking around this place. There's a distinct smell. I can see bullet holes in some of the trailer homes. In others, there's standing water underneath them. And you can see the mold. So you have that, the pandemic, you have garbage, you have dogs, you have people being attacked. The story that uh, undocumented folks carry thousands of dollars in their pockets, so we're going to, you know, we're easy prey, so we're just going to break in and get everything that they have. She is speaking to the myth that some in the non-Latino community believe, which is that undocumented people keep cash in their homes or carry a lot of it around with them because they don't have access to bank accounts. And as we walk around, this is really hard to see. People making their homes in these living conditions that are so dire. These are the essential workers who helped feed my family, your family, an entire country during the pandemic. And to see them living under these conditions, yeah, it's hard. So people might drive by and say, wow, that's really poor, poor, poor. But you're also saying, yes, it is, but also there's a tremendous amount of love and community. People feel like they belong to something. You know, a lot of a lot of folks, you know how we are. We come in and we bring our tias, our family members, and this is where kind of like a first stop and some stay here. You smell the frijoles. Yeah. <laughs> you can smell the frijoles yeah. de olla. Yeah. <laughs> I see a woman watering her little yard in front of her trailer home. She smiles and waves at us. And then... As Lorena and I walk through the park, she tells me, look, yes, these are dire living conditions, but for this community, these are still homes, and it is still una comunidad, a community. Tonight, Lorena's organization is hosting a vigil to remember the two-year anniversary of the ICE raids. Gracias a todos. Son cuatro pueblos she tells the crowd that's gathered here, mostly Latinos and Latinas, some black folks and white folks, and says that there are four towns having similar vigils at the same time. And even though the crowd is small, Lorena is really happy to see community members coming out and organizing. Then a man steps up to the microphone and Lorena begins to translate in Spanish. Thank you for having me. You know, I'm born and raised in Mississippi, and it seems like we're always making history the Siempre wrong way. De la equivocada. They said that our schools are 
are not the best here Dicen in Mississippi. Que nuestras escuelas no son las mejores en Mississippi. They say that that we're the poorest, and now they're saying that we have the largest raid in United States history. And I like to say, you know, we must do better. He says that the community and the country must hold every administration accountable. We should not give Joe Biden a pass. No, dejamos a dar a Joe Biden un pase. Just like we didn't give Trump a pass. Igual que hicimos con Trump. So we need change and we need change now. Necesitamos cambio, lo necesitamos ahora. Thank you. Lorena and other advocates are pushing and hoping that the Biden administration will provide a pathway to citizenship immediately for essential workers, something the president said that he would support. When we come back, we hear from two Guatemalan families who have planted their roots firmly in Mississippi, and they have no plans on leaving their homes. Ellos no se van y tú no te vayas. Stay with us. We're back. We've been telling you about the racial history behind chicken processing plants in the American South and how they exploit the most vulnerable workers. We also talked about recent crimes against Latinos and Latinas and another layer of fear that is rippling throughout the community. All right, let's get back to the story. Wait, so are you just starting the new year? How many days have you been to school? I just started. This is eight-year-old Miko. Miko has a big smile on his face. He's kind of tipping back and forth, excited in his red school uniform. Then Susana, Miko's mom, offers to take me inside her home. By the way, they asked us to change their names to protect them because of their immigration status. Susana is an indigenous woman from Guatemala. She's lived in Mississippi for several years now. This is my first time meeting her. We just walked in your front door. And the first thing you see is a rug leading up to an altar. There's Jesus Christ, and he's wrapped in traditional Guatemalan rebozo, a shawl. And below it, there's flowers, plastic flowers, and there's candles. And it's quite beautiful. Yo me refugié en Dios cuando agarraron a mi esposo y y pues después de la redada yo le pedí a la iglesia que me que me dieran la oportunidad de tenerla en mi casa y pues me la dieron y yo le pedí mucho a Dios a que a que mi esposo regresara. After ICE picked up Susana's husband during the raids in the poultry plants, he was deported to Guatemala. She says she then had no one else to turn to except God. She asked if the local church would allow her to take the statue of Jesus Christ, basically an altar, so that she could pray for her husband's return. Um, Susana is telling me that the statue actually is brought here from Guatemala and then it is shared in the community for people who are desperate. And she's telling me she was desperate when her husband was taken, but that she believes that her prayer and this altar helped bring him back. Creo que sin, sin la ayuda de él, creo que mi esposo nunca hubiera venido. 
After being deported, her husband tried several times to cross the border back to the United States to reunite with his family, but he was sent back to Mexico every single time. On his third try, he finally made it to Mississippi. While her husband was away, Susana tells me that her children suffered a lot, especially Miko. The little boy fell into a depression. He just stopped eating. Eventually, she had to take him to see a psychologist. I was getting really worried about my dad, like, not coming home anymore. That's a lot of emotion for a little tiny body like yours. What do you do with all of those? Uh, mostly my heart hurted. I'm right here where the, I'm the center of my heart started hurting. Like disasters. It feels like your heart was having disasters? I'm also the one that happened. Um, I thought like it was like burning my heart. During this time, Susana also had to think about how to make ends meet. Yeah. What did you do to find work? Pues le pedí favor a a un señor que conozco y él me ayudó. Fue otro señor que trabaja en la compañía que me ayudaran. En la pollera. So you went to work in a chicken plant in the middle of of COVID. Sí. Susana was terrified, she says, when she had to go to work. Unlike Elena, who we heard from earlier, Susana did not have work authorization. Can you talk to me about the work that you were doing on the line in the poultry plant? Pues escoger el pollo, la pechuga va cortado. Y pues yo tengo que escoger, saber, calcular el peso del pollo. I've interviewed a lot of people who have worked in poultry plants, but I've never seen anyone talk about it the way Susana did. She was literally imitating the work of the assembly line. Her hands would start moving at this fast, repetitive rate, showing me what she had to do for eight straight hours at a time. It's been estimated that the average worker at these plants repeats these type of forceful motions while they cut, pull, and slice more than 20,000 times a day, all while standing in the same spot. Pues a veces en los pasillos lloraba por mi familia, porque mis hijos sufrían. You would cry while you were working inside the chicken plant with a mask on. Mm-hmm. Sí. How, how would you walk out the door, open that door, get in your car, and drive to the chicken plant knowing that there was COVID everywhere? Pues sentía mucho miedo. Mucho miedo, pero a la vez la desesperación de, de ¿cómo se llama? De luchar por mi familia. Tenía que hacerlo. The desperation to fight for her family kept Susana going. She says she would ask God to please protect her from the virus. Her little boy, Miko, has asthma, and she was terrified of passing COVID to him. Susana was also constantly worried that at any moment there could be another ice raid. And right then, as we're talking, the door opens, and Susana's husband, Adan, walks through. Hola. Hola, buenas tardes. <laughs> Adan has just gotten out of work. Now he has a job in construction. Pues por ahora simplemente trabajo yo de remodelación de casas. 
He helps remodel houses. Now, as he's settling in after a long day at work, being hugged on and kissed by his kids, I ask him if he feels like Mississippi is his home. Sí, porque en primer lugar, pues aquí hay uh, hay muchas oportunidades para para todos nosotros, para nuestros hijos, y luego que los niños ya nacieron aquí o son nacidos de aquí, prácticamente, y ahí son de aquí. Adán says yes, this is his home because there's a lot of opportunity for his family here and because his children were born in Mississippi. When you say that this country offers you so many opportunities, there's a part of me that just thinks that this country has had the opportunity to detain you, arrest you, jail you, uh, deport you multiple times. And I'm like, that doesn't sound like opportunity. That, that sounds like, like a country that doesn't want you. So I'm trying to understand that. Sí, porque una parte pues no no está bien lo que el, el gobierno estaba haciendo pues o está haciendo no sé cómo está ahorita. Simplemente estamos trabajando cuando nos agarraron ese día cuando fue de la redada. Estamos trabajando honestamente, no no estamos haciendo nada malo ni robando a nadie. But. Adán says what happened the day of the raids was not okay. We were just there working. He also says that back in Guatemala there are a lot of problems and that he's better off here in the United States. Since Adán has returned home, Nico and his little sister have been much happier and healthier. So how how is your heart now? Like if it had disasters and burning when your dad was gone? Feels like normal better. Feels like it's fresh. When Miko talks about his heart, his mom and dad look at him from afar with this like extraordinary love in their eyes. He and his little sister have gone through so much over the last few years, and they constantly live with the cloud of deportation still hanging over their family. I'm getting ready to leave Mississippi, but I really want to meet Elena's daughters. I know that one of Elena's daughters is 13 years old and that the other one is 15. Both of them are U.S. citizens. So I'm back at Elena's house now, and she offers to take me inside. Now, I'm fully vaccinated, so I put on my mask and I stand at the door I can feel the cold air conditioning from inside hitting my sweaty face. Wow, oye, Elena, tu casa está preciosa. Wow, she has a beautiful house. Oh my God, there's like a, a room with like, like Mexican blue on the wall. She's got a fireplace. She's got a huge sofa. You know, it's coming together. And as I look around, her two daughters come out from their rooms and they put on their masks. What's up? Hey. The both of you are daughters? Yes. How are you feeling? Good. Like, your mom is not leaving Mississippi. Oh. So, you're staying. So, what's your big dream? Um, my dream is to be a doctor. Okay. Why do you want to become a doctor? Because, like, it'll make my mom happy if I buy her a house. And then she don't have to work anymore. And what's your big dream? Become a criminal investigator. 
criminal investigator. You know, there are a lot of unsolved crimes around here. You know that, right? Mm -hmm. So you want to help? Yeah. So before I leave, is there anything you want to tell me about what it's been like to see your mom go through the last two years since the raid? Ever since she found a work to painting, she felt more like happy because it's like when she was working at Chicken Punch, she said, oh, I, it's not enough money. So basically, I think she's happy. In many ways, Elena is happy because she made her dream come true. She didn't want to work at the pollera, at the chicken plant anymore. And she's not. Now she's painting things like houses, hotels, clinics, and schools. She is so proud of the work that she's doing. She walks me back to her car, pops open the hood, and shows me her work equipment. Okay, and she's got a little yellow safety vest. She's got her work boots. ¿Estos te quedan? No, son muy grandes. Oh, my God. ¿Y tú los usas? A veces. So she's got work boots that were obviously gifted to her, which are probably like a size 10 men's, but... She still uses them sometimes because she... Más brochas. Wow, a new paintbrush. Cuando miras a tu carro así lleno de todas estas cosas de pintura, ¿cómo te sientes? Bien, porque de verdad me, me gusta mi trabajo. Even though Mississippi has treated you and your family in a challenging way, you really love this place. You love this community and you love this house. You love this yard, you love this forest and these trees. La verdad, sí. La verdad, sí, siento muy, muy bonito, muy tranquila. Yo digo que ahora, por ahora, estamos bien porque, pues, imagínate, tenemos un techo donde vivir más, lo más importante. Y, no sé, lo quiero mucho aquí en Forest. Elena says she feels at peace in this moment because she has a roof over her head, and that is the most important thing. She says she loves being here in Forest, Mississippi. She finally has a sense of security, even if it's just for this moment right now. As I say goodbye to Elena, her family, and everyone I met in Mississippi, I'm thinking so much about how they are now part of the future of Mississippi. They're organizing, they're looking out for one another, they're dreaming big and doing the best they can for their families. And even though the state historically hasn't treated them well and companies continue to exploit the most vulnerable, the people here are pushing through, demanding better and surviving. I think about Elena's two teenage daughters about Miko, about Yesenia's kids. And I think about how one day these kids are going to determine who's going to lead this country and who's going to lead this state because their roots are solidly right here in Mississippi. And those roots, they're going to continue to grow. They're going to continue to get stronger. And the folks here, they'll continue to rise. The week that our reporting on Mississippi was going to drop, the Department of Homeland Security issued an unprecedented memo on October 12th. The memo calls on ICE to end mass worksite raids entirely. 
and to create new policies that encourage all workers, even those who are undocumented, to report labor violations without the fear of deportation. This episode of our continuing journalism in Mississippi was reported by me and Reynaldo Leaños Jr. It was produced by Reynaldo and edited by Mitra Bonshahi. It was mixed by Julia Caruso. It was fact-checked by Ben Kalin. The Latino USA team includes Mike Sargent, Julieta Martinelli, Victoria Estrada, Patricia Sulbaran, Jeannie Montalvo, Alejandra Salazar, and Julia Rocha, with help from Raul Perez. We're edited by Andrea Lopez Cruzado and Marta Martinez. Our editorial director is Julio Ricardo Varela. Our supervising senior engineer is Stephanie LeBeau. Additional engineering help from Gabriela Baez and JJ Carubin. Our digital editor is Luis Luna. Our New York Women's Foundation Ignite Fellow is Maria Esquinca. Our Latino USA Fellows are Monica Morales-Garcia and Elisa Ballena. Our Publics Lab Fellow from the CUNY Graduate Center is Andrew Viñales. Our theme music was composed by Zenia Rubinos. If you like the music you heard on this episode, stop by latinousa.org and check out our weekly Spotify playlist. I'm your host and executive producer, Maria Hinojosa. Join us again on our next episode. And in the meantime, I'll see you on all of our social media. Ay los guacho. Bye.